Let us begin. Can everybody hear me? Can you hear me at Calvary? Okay, good. All right. We continue. We continue in our summer reformation survey. Last week, we learned about the man who accidentally sparked a massive reform movement in 1517 with his posting of 95 theses or assertions on indulgences. And that man was Martin Luther. But while Luther was leading reform in Holy Roman Germany, another man was independently leading reform in Switzerland. And that's the man that we're going to learn about today, a man named Ulrich Zwingli. And someone once characterized the three main figures of the Reformation as follows. Martin Luther was the great prophet, a courageous denouncer of evil and a proclaimer of God's saving gospel. Ulrich Zwingli was the great expositor, a careful verse-by-verse -verse exegete who unveiled for his people what God's word actually says. John Calvin was the great theologian, an eloquent summarizer and systematizer of God's truth. Though our practice of expository preaching ultimately goes back to the Bible itself, we nonetheless are indebted to and can be greatly encouraged by the ministry of the great expositor Ulrich Zwingli. But who was Zwingli? Some of you may have never even heard of him. Let's find out just who he was. One point of clarification before we proceed. I mentioned to you last lesson that the Lutheran church was challenged by its loss of land and loss of financial support. But you may have wondered, why did the church have land in the first place? Well, let me explain. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church as a whole and various churches and monasteries within Christendom specifically became quite wealthy and soon quite corrupt. But this is not because people simply gave money to the church or because the church sold indulgences. Another great factor in this wealth was land ownership. You see, when a church or a monastery was established, it received an endowment of land, usually from the local ruler. And not only did the church building reside on this land, but the church also received income from this land. This income was meant to provide for church maintenance, charity to the poor, and the sustenance of the ministering clergy, and even the papacy back in Rome. Now, this Certainly is not the New Testament's design for the church, but is it really so bad for a church to support itself in this way? Well, the problem was the Catholic Church kept gaining more and more land. Pious medieval Christians, concerned for their own souls and wanting to do good works before God, often gifted part or all of their land to the church, either the local church or to a monastery or something like that. Also, less pious nobles would often gift land to a church or to a monastery in exchange for that institution appointing the nobleman's son to the head position of that establishment, either the bishop or the abbot. So he gives the land in exchange for having his son rule over that monastery or church. In this way, over time, certain churches and monasteries started to have huge swaths of land, and the heads of those churches and monasteries had to start acting like worldly counts and dukes to manage all the land and the people on the land that they now controlled. 
some of these churchmen soon even raised and maintained whole armies. And by the way, the church did not pay taxes on their land, which gave them a great financial advantage over other landowners in the medieval period. And you can see why practices like simony and pluralism occurred. Becoming a bishop or abbot was a great way to make money and to live a cushy lifestyle, though you probably wouldn't have time for any real ministry because of all the land and people you would need to manage. By the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church owned a lot of land, and various local rulers often coveted church land and church wealth, and this made these rulers more sympathetic to Reformation ideas. And when Reformation came into a certain region, one of the things that would happen is that the churches would be, the Catholic churches would be divested of their wealth and their land. But of course, then you have to ask, then you have to find a, a new way to support those churches. So that's just a point of clarification so that we have a little bit of understanding of some of the things that we hear in these lectures or in these lessons. Back to Zwingli. Let's talk about Zwingli today. Rather than split the discussion of Zwingli into different topics like I did with Luther, we're going to simply move chronologically through Zwingli's life. And Zwingli's life can be broken down into three main phases. We'll first see how Zwingli came to embrace the Bible, the true gospel, and Reformation. Then we'll see how Zwingli promoted Reformation in Zurich. That's his main city of ministry. And then we'll see how Zwingli dealt with Catholic and Anabaptist opposition toward the end of his life. Zwingli was a great man used of God, but like Martin Luther, still an imperfect man. And we have much to learn from Zwingli's life. Let's pray before we continue. My God, our God, we thank you for these men who came before us, men and women. Pray, God, you help us to learn and be encouraged by their examples learn from their mistakes, and I pray that you'd help me in being able to teach today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. There we go. Zwingli was born in Wildhaus, a small town in the eastern part of Switzerland, on January 1st, 1484, less than two months after Luther was born. These two are uh, pretty similar in many ways. He's born in Switzerland. He's born to a sex successful farming family. His father was a chief town official. That is, he was in the local government. Now, note that connection, because this government connection in the family would be influential or could have been influential on Zwingli's later beliefs. Speaking of government, Switzerland at the time of Zwingli and in the time of Reformation is, a, is in a unique political situation. While officially part of the Holy Roman Empire, Switzerland was essentially independent of the emperor, sometimes working with the Holy Roman Emperor and sometimes allying, allying against him with France or the Papal States. And Switzerland was not a united kingdom. Switzerland is one country today with a strong central government, but back then Switzerland was actually a confederation. Oh, there's a little picture of 13 mini countries called cantons. And you can see the different cantons, the different uh, divisions of Switzerland. Each canton could ally with whomever it wished. And cantons could also go to war with one another. It's kind of like, if you can imagine, the different counties of New Jersey 
and each county has its own independent government, makes its own alliances, and maintains its own army. That's kind of like the situation in Switzerland. Zwingli was born into the canton of St. Gallen, which is all the way on the northeast side over here. And his parents groomed him to become a priest. Let me go back to my other slide. Zwingli received his early education from his uncle, a Catholic clergyman, and he later studied at schools at Basel and Bern, both uh, in Switzerland, and then the universities of Vienna, and then back to Basel again. At each school, Zwingli displayed great learning ability. And while at university, Zwingli studied under the humanists, and those humanists. And he these humanists began to instill in him a desire to know classical text and biblical text and also to see the abuses of the Catholic Church exposed and reformed. Zwingli graduated from Basel in 1506 and became a priest in Glarus, a city near his hometown. Now, as a priest, Zwingli continued humanistic study. He read the ancient classics and the writings of some of the church fathers. He studied the works of the humanists also, especially or the, like the works of Erasmus, and he even began to correspond with many of the noted humanists. Zwingli also learned how to read Greek. But his heart was not yet at peace with God. He's a priest. He's learning all these things. He's encountered the humanists, but he still is not reconciled to God. He wrote later of his early years as a priest, quote, Though I was young, ecclesiastical duties inspired in me more fear than joy. Because I knew and remained convinced that I would give an account of the blood of the sheep which would perish as a consequence of my carelessness. Unquote. Sound a little familiar? Also, while a young priest, Zwingli actually had an affair with one of his parishioners. Yet God was drawing Zwingli. While priest, Another thing that Zwingli did is that he served twice as a chaplain to Swiss mercenaries fighting for the Pope in Italy. Swiss mercenaries, you see, were valued fighting men for various European powers. Even today, the soldiers that protect the Pope in Vatican City are known as the Swiss Guard. That goes back to this period. This mercenary system seemed to work out well for both sides, Foreign powers got more well-trained soldiers, and Swiss cantons got more money. But as chaplain to these mercenaries, these Swiss mercenaries, Zwingli witnessed the dark side of mercenary service. He saw his countrymen mercilessly looting conquered regions. He watched some of his flock killed in wars that had nothing to do with the Swiss. And he even witnessed Swiss soldiers fighting against their fellow Swiss because they were mercenaries hired by both sides. Zwingli's view on the papacy and on mercenary service therefore began to change. He wrote two works explaining why mercenary service was terrible for Swiss society and how France, the Holy Roman Empire, and even the papacy were actually exploiting the Swiss people. In 1516, Zwingli got his hands on Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and he immersed himself in it. Remember that, that critical edition, that very important version. Before long, Zwingli, like Luther, from studying the Greek text, came to understand the Bible's 
true teaching of salvation by faith. And Zwingli was transformed. And immediately he began to preach this gospel in Galeris, where he was serving as priest. And all of this came about without Martin Luther's influence. Zwingli actually wrote once later, quote, <clears throat> I began to preach the gospel of Christ in 1516. I started preaching the gospel before I had even heard Luther's name. Luther, whose name I did not know for at least another two years, had definitely not instructed me. I followed Holy Scripture alone, unquote. So then here is another example of God's salvation mercy. God regenerated Zwingli by his word and filled Zwingli with a passion for the gospel and for reform. To be sure, Zwingli would later encounter Luther's writings and greatly appreciate them. But Zwingli was always keen to note that Zwingli followed the Bible, not Luther. Because of his anti-mercenary publications, Zwingli had to leave Glarus in 1516 and instead became a priest at a Benedictine abbey in Einsiedeln, which was a resort town famed for its special shrine to Mary. Many European Christians came from all over Europe to this shrine on pilgrimage. Zwingli's looking at all these Christian pilgrims coming to the shrine, and what does he do? Well, he preaches on the vanity of pilgrimages explains that there's nothing in the New Testament that shows that pilgrimages have any effect on one's spiritual condition. Actually, Zwingli's position at Einsiedeln was perfect. He had much fewer duties as priest at the abbey, and so that gave him more time to study the Bible and the writings of the church fathers. Moreover, the constant influx of pilgrims to Einsiedeln also allowed Zwingli to preach to many different people each week and tell them the true gospel. This is what Zwingli did. He kept on preaching there, and he gained a respected reputation throughout Switzerland as a reformer, as a preacher, and as one who exposed the abuses in the Catholic Church, especially indulgences. Now, like Erasmus and Luther, though, Zwingli did not initially envision a radical break with Rome. Zwingli had in mind moral reform. He wasn't ready to get rid of the Pope or even change official church doctrine. But he was, as he preached, gaining more and more confidence in the Bible. And a change in church posts for Zwingli in 1519 would only strengthen the reformer's confidence even more. At the end of 1518, a position opened up at the Grossmünster, that is the great cathedral church, in Zurich. Zurich is another canton in Switzerland, position opened up for a preaching priest. And this was quite a prestigious post. Zurich was the lead city of the canton of Zurich, also in northeast Switzerland, and this was a large and important church. Moreover, the leaders in Zurich appreciated Zwingli's pro-Swiss, pro-humanist preaching and writing, and so they invited him to take the job. Zwingli accepted and on January 1st, 1519, he preached his first sermon at the Grossmünster Church. But Zwingli decided to do something a little uncustomary that day. Normally, preachers in the Catholic Church preached according to the church calendar. One week, there was a certain topic or text, and the next week, a different topic or text, and always according to the calendar. You weren't supposed to deviate from the traditional sermon for that week of the calendar. But Zwingli 
with his humanist background, thought it would be helpful if the people had some context to the word that they were hearing. So starting that first Sunday in Zurich, Zwingli opened to the beginning of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and he began to read it, and he began to explain it to his listeners, verse by verse. This is expository preaching, and this is what he continued to do, verse by verse, passage by passage, each week, moving through the scriptures, explaining it to, to the people in a language that they can understand. The people were delighted. They had never heard anything like this before. The whole New Testament read and explained to them in a way that they could understand. And as he moved verse by verse, Zwingli sometimes encountered texts that obviously went against official Catholic dogma. But Zwingli remained true to the text. If the text conflicted with Catholic teaching, so be it. One must be faithful to the Bible, because the Bible is the ultimate authority. As people heard these contradictions of Catholic teaching, reform was not far behind. Later that year, in 1519, another development came that would have an impact on Zwingli's ministry, and that was the plague. The plague came to Zurich. Many people fell sick. 2,000 died in the city. But unlike most nobles and most of the Catholic clergy, Zwingli did not flee Zurich. He decided to stay and to continue to minister to his people during the plague. He himself became sick and nearly died in this period. But God was gracious to the people of Zurich, and he didn't take Zwingli home yet. Moreover, Zwingli's decision to stay in Zurich with his flock won him the great favor of the people. It's one thing to preach a message. It's another thing to live it out, to show true affection and love from God for people. Zwingli was doing just that. Zwingli recovered from his illness, strengthened by God's deliverance, and he continued to preach in Zurich. It took Zwingli six years to go through the New Testament verse by verse. I know that's actually a little bit quicker than some expositors today. But as he did this, radical reform broke out in Zurich. In 1522, there was the famous affair of the sausages. You may have heard of this. It was March during the time of Lent. And as you know, Lent is a time of official fasting in the Catholic Church. And in the Middle Ages, this most specifically meant fasting from meat. During Lent, you didn't eat any meat in the Middle Ages. But by this time in Zurich, Zwingli and many of his listeners have come to see the centrality of the Word of God. And on March 5th, 1522, Zwingli preached a sermon on how Christians are not obligated to keep fasts. Rather, fasts are only voluntary. Four days later, on March 9th, Christoph Froschauer, a printer in Zurich, a supporter of Zwingli, decided to grill up some sausages. And he invited Zwingli and 11 others to come partake of these sausages. The group cut and ate two smoked sausages during Lent. Though Zwingli himself didn't eat anything. He was just present. Now, why was this a big deal? Well, you see, Froschauer, with Zwingli's support, was making a statement. The Bible is the Christian's true authority. Not the Catholic Church, not the Pope, 
Therefore, I don't have to follow Lent, and I can eat sausages if I want to. And this event was no secret. People heard about it. I'm sure the neighbors smelled the delicious sausages that were cooking. And there was a bit of a public outcry as a result. Froschauer, the printer, was even arrested. But Zwingli defended Froschauer's actions in a subsequent sermon. Here's an excerpt from that sermon, what Zwingli said. Quote, to sum up briefly, if you want to fast, do so. If you do not want to eat meat, don't eat it. But allow Christians a free choice. If you would be a Christian at heart, act in this way. If the spirit of your belief teaches you thus, then fast. But grant also your neighbor the privilege of Christian liberty. And fear God greatly if you have transgressed his laws, nor make what man has invented greater before God than what God himself has commanded. Unquote. Zwingli's sermon persuaded the people and Froschauer was released. The Catholic Church, most specifically the Bishop of Constance, who had oversight of Zurich, however, wanted to stop this teaching that Zwingli was spreading from Zurich. But it was too late. Zwingli had the support of the people, and Reformation was just beginning. Later in 1522, Zwingli petitioned the Archbishop of Constance to allow clerical marriage in Zurich arguing that mandated celibacy, which had become the dogma of the church, was not scriptural. Priests should be allowed to marry. But the archbishop responded with a big fat no. You may not get married. Priests may not get married. But Swingley got married anyways, secretly. There's actually some debate as to whether he got married before he sent this position, petition to the archbishop or afterwards. Either way, this secret marriage may not have been the best idea, or at least the way that Zwingli went about it, as you'll see in just a moment. Zwingli married the widow Anna Reinhard in 1522, but he announced this marriage publicly only two years later. But by then, Anna was obviously pregnant. This caused a bit of a scandal. It was one thing for a priest to get married, especially without permission from the bishop, but to have had a secret wife for two years and not tell the church about it? Uh, this started all sorts of rumors. The revelation almost ended Zwingli's ministry. But God was gracious. He brought Zwingli through it, and he was allowed to continue to preach. His marriage to Anna was actually a good one. The two of them had four children together. Anna had already had three children from her former marriage. Anna Reidharn was a beautiful and godly woman, a crucial helpmate to Zwingli, just as Catherine was to Luther. She was called the Apostolic Dorcas, referring to the righteous woman from the New Testament, due to Anna's care for others, especially the poor and the sick. She not only managed the Zwingli household, but she continually encouraged her husband and helped ensure his protection in a city that pre presented increasing dangers to one leading reform. She, wanted, she pretty much made sure that he never walked alone at night or in dangerous areas. She and Zwingli remained married until uh, their marriage was cut short by Zwingli's death in 1531. Anna died peacefully later due to ill health in 1538. But back to reform. In 1523, Zwingli with his fellow reformers in Zurich wrote the 67 Articles. 
an explanation of Reformed Protestantism as they had understood it, and an attack on many unbiblical practices of the Catholic Church. Zwingli presented these articles before the city council in Zurich. Understand Zurich is a republic. It's ruled by a city council rather than a duke or a king. So he presents these to the city council uh, and defends them before a representative from the Bishop of Constance. This event is known as the first disputation. Now the Catholic representative from the bishop was pretty unprepared for the debate. His, uh, his mode of um, attack was basically to say, this doctrine stuff is a matter for bishops, not laymen. So I refuse even to discuss it. Well, it wasn't very hard for Zwingli to win the debate because he was quite willing to discuss it. And the council was persuaded by Zwingli's arguments and approved the articles. And they also let Zwingli keep preaching in Zurich despite the Catholic Church's demand for him to stop. Let me show you a few excerpts from these 67 articles, these 67 statements of belief. You'll notice as we read through some of them, some of the Reformation solas, those five solas, implied in these assertions. So 67 articles. Number one, all who say that the gospel is invalid without the confirmation of the church, err and slander God. Assertion 19, Christ is the only mediator between God and ourselves. Number 20, God will always give everything in Christ's name. Once it follows that for our part, after this life, we need no mediator except him. 22, Christ is our justification, from which follows that our from which follows that our good works, or I'm sorry, let me say that again, from which follows that our good works, if they are of Christ, are good. But if ours, they are neither right nor good. 24. No Christian is bound to do those which God has not decreed. Hence, one may eat at all times all food. 27. All Christian men are brethren of Christ and brothers to one another. And the title of father should not be assumed by anyone on earth. This includes orders, sects, and factions. 28. All that God has allowed or not forbidden is right. Hence, marriage is permitted to all human beings. 34. There is no ground in the teachings of Christ for the pretensions of the so-called spiritual authority, that is, the Pope. 35. Whereas the jurisdiction and authority of the secular power is based on the teachings and actions of Christ. 36, all the rights and protection that the so-called spiritual authority claims belong to secular governments, provided they are Christian. 37, to them likewise all Christians owe obedience without exception. Men notice in these last couple articles that while denigrating papal authority, notice the authority that Zwigli does promote as biblically supported, the secular government, which would be much to the liking of the city council who is a secular government. Notice, though, that Zwingli says that this government must be Christian to deserve obedience from Christians. So Zwingli sees a strong connection between church and state. Really, this whole disputation is an example of that connection. The city government is sitting in judgment on religious matters. And this close church-state connection is going to lead to problems later on as we'll see later in today's lesson. One more article, 63. 
To sum up, that realm is best and most stable, which is ruled in accordance with God's will alone. And the worst is, and weakest is that which is ruled arbitrarily. In other words, the best thing for Zurich to do is to follow Reformation, not the Pope. And as we saw, the Council accepted these articles. And Reformation just kept coming. Later in 1523, there's a second disputation before the Council regarding the Mass and religious icons. The results of this disputation took a little while to take effect, but by 1524-1525, we have full Zwinglian Reformation in effect, in Zurich, all according to the regulative principle of worship. Remember what the regulative principle means? Unless the New Testament expressly commands you to do it, you cannot do it in the church. So this means lots of changes in Zurich, especially in the church. Icons are removed. The sacrificial mass was abolished, and the memorial of the Lord's Supper is put in its place. The altar for the uh, the altar in the church was removed, and tables were brought in to simulate a meal. Zwingli got rid of the chalice normally used in communion, and instead used wooden cups. Now, unlike Luther, Zwingli saw the preaching of the Bible rather than the Eucharist at the center of the worship service. In fact, Zwingli may have overcompensated, and Zurich as a whole, and following Zwingli. They de-emphasized the Eucharist so much that they only took communion about four times a year. But he did elevate preaching. Other reforms. The bones of saints were buried so that they couldn't be venerated anymore. And the gold and silver of relics was melted down. There were no more prayers for the dead. Monasteries were turned into hospitals and schools. Their wealth seized by the government. Preachers no longer dressed in priestly robes. They instead dressed up as professors and academics. Catholic fasts and holidays were no longer celebrated. Church organs were dismantled, and choirs were abolished. Now on this last one, you say, wait, wait, what are we doing there? Why get rid of those? Well, this is the regulative principle. There's no organ in the New Testament. There's no mention of choirs in the New Testament, so you get rid of them. This isn't because Zwingli was anti-music. He actually was a skilled musician himself, a violin player. But in church worship, he didn't see a place for instruments or choirs. Now you may ask, what about the Old Testament? There are clearly instruments and choirs there. Well, don't know how Zwingli would have answered that, but probably he would have said, oh, that's, that's the Old Testament. That's just a shadow of what was to come. It's not prescriptive for the New Testament church. We stick to the New Testament. So, if you're in Zurich, no instruments. Speaking of the New Testament, in 1524, Zwingli and some colleagues finished a translation of the New Testament into Swiss. And they also finished a translation of the whole Bible in 1530, actually a couple of years before Luther and his colleagues did the same in Germany. So, unfettered gospel declaration has been unleashed in Zurich and is spreading into the surrounding cantons by 1525. But opposition was also building. Like with Luther, conflict came as reform moved forward, not only with the Catholics, 
but also, just like with Luther, with Protestants who felt like reform was not going far enough. Now, I know that seems surprising because you, you, it's like we asked, you mean there are reformers more radical than Zwingli? He's getting rid of the organ. He's smashing the icons. Yes, actually, there were more radical reformers. And this is where we run into a somewhat unfortunate part of Zwingli's ministry. We must now look at his interaction with the Anabaptists. Now, I mentioned that term before. What's an Anabaptist? Well, the name literally means rebaptizer. It, along with the term catabaptist, refers to really those in the Reformation period who practiced believers' baptism. That is, you get baptized only actually only after you actually become saved and believe in Jesus. In the eyes of infant Baptists, those who practice Believers' baptism were actually rebaptizing people. They want to rebaptize everybody who's already been baptized as an infant. Really, these terms Anabaptist or Catabaptist were pejorative terms. Oh, those rebaptizers. But really, it seems to seems to be the case that pejorative terms always become the actual labels of various people in, in religious movements. They beca they became the terms that stick and that we call them today. Anabaptists in different parts of Europe believed pretty different things. When I say Anabaptist, that could refer to really radical people who want to upset the social order and rise up in rebellion, or it could refer to people who are a little more right on. And it's that latter group that we see arise in Zurich. In many ways, this group of Anabaptists, who called themselves the Brethren, they were pretty orthodox. They were actually students of Zwingli who learned to value the Bible as he did, and they were firmly committed to the regulative principle of worship. They felt, though, that as Zwingli pursued reform in Zurich, that he was actually compromising the Bible for the sake of government favor and support. Zwingli, they felt, would not proceed with Reformation even though he knew it to be biblical if the government would not support him. For example, back in 1523, when the Mass was being discussed in the Second Disputation before the City Council, some of the Brethren thought that Zwingli should abolish the Mass with or without the Council's approval. They asserted that, after all, the Bible does not make civil government authoritative in spiritual matters. So who cares what they think? Let's just do what's biblical. Zwingli, however, really wanted to get the council's approval before taking such a serious step of abolishing the mass. So observing this in Zwingli, these students of Zwingli, the Swiss brethren, they began to distance themselves from their former mentor until a showdown arose between Zwingli and the Anabaptists in 1524 and 1525, when the city council decreed that all people in Zurich should have their infants baptized. Now, what precisely Zwingli believed about infant baptism is a little difficult to determine. At one point, he did say that infants who were not baptized did not go to hell. That was one of the reasons that you had to have your infant baptized in the Catholic Church. Without that, they're not going to heaven. So, he rejected that. So it's not as if Zwingli saw infant baptism as critical for salvation. Furthermore, when the council wanted to 
enforce infant baptism in Zurich, Zwingli consulted with some of the brethren about the issue. He wanted their opinion. The brethren said, essentially, look, the New Testament supports believer's baptism, not infant baptism. If you're going to be faithful to the scriptures, Zwingli, like you say you are committed to being, then you've got to go against the city council in this. But the city council became aware of the brethren's teaching on baptism, believer's baptism, and so they called for a public debate, the third disputation, which centered on baptism. What are the two sides of this debate? Well, it ended up being Zwingli versus the Anabaptists. Zwingli took the side of the city council, that is the side of infant baptism, and he argued against the brethren. Why did Zwingli do this? Did he really believe in infant baptism? Or was this about submitting to the government? Was Zwingli convinced that even if credo baptism were true, that the council will never, would never approve of it or was not ready for it yet? And it's hard to say. Hard to say what Zwingli was thinking. Many have noted that infant baptism was very entrenched in the society at this time. It's not simply a matter of what does the Bible say, or at least it wouldn't have appeared so to them. You actually became a citizen in Zurich, or really in any place in Europe, at your infant baptism, at your christening. So was Zwingli concerned that such a reform in baptism would overthrow the social order? I have to figure a whole lot of things out differently than what they already knew. But for whatever reason, Zwingli took the side of the infant Baptist, and he argued against his former students. The argument played out in a way that has become typical between Paedobaptists and Creobaptists even today, with arguments about, among other issues, baptisms linked to circumcision in the Old Testament and the household baptisms that are featured in Acts. In this debate, the brethren actually represented themselves very well, with sound arguments from the scriptures. But the council sided with Zwingli. They reasserted that the brethren must have their infants baptized, and they forbid the brethren from teaching any more about believers' baptism in Zurich. But the brethren did not obey the city council. Soon afterwards, actually, they conducted their first adult baptism, and they continued to spread their teaching, not only about baptism but also about the need for a church that is separate from government authority. A church that people are not born into, but a church that people choose to join when they identify themselves as believers in Jesus. The brethren also began to circulate pamphlets attacking Zwingli and the city council. Therefore, if Zwingli somewhat sympathized with the credo-baptist position before, no longer. He now became an entrenched opponent of the Anabaptists. He saw the brethren not only as schismatic heretics, but actually rebels, rebels against the government. And we can see this directly in a pamphlet that Zwingli circulated in 1527, entitled Refutation of the Tricks of the Baptists. Let me read a few parts for you. Here's Zwingli in his pamphlet. When the Anabaptists saw themselves beaten after a considerable conflict, that is, in the Third Disputation, and when we had exhorted them in friendly ways, 
we broke up in such a way that many of them promised they would make no disturbance, though they did not promise to give up their opinions. So he's talking about the results of their debate. Within three, or at the most four days, it was announced that the leaders of the sect had baptized 15 brethren. Then we began to perceive why they had determined to collect a new church and had opposed infant baptism so seriously. We warned the church that it could not be maintained, that this proceeded from good counsel to say nothing of a good spirit. And for these reasons, they had attempted a division and partition of the church. And this was just as hypocritical as the superstition of the monks. So note that Zwingli asserts the real motivation for the brethren's credo-baptism was schism. They just wanted to start their new church, and this baptism thing is just an excuse. But we can't have the church divided. That would be a terrible thing. That's Zwingli's point of view. Secondly, though the churches had to preserve their liberty of judging concerning doctrine, they had set up catabaptism without any conference. For during the whole battle about infant baptism, they had said nothing about catabaptism. Third, this catabaptism seemed like the watchword of seditious men. Okay, this argument gets a little weak right here, but basically he says, they, they set up catabaptism, this new idea, and they didn't even ask for our input. Well, yeah, because you were talking about infant baptism the whole time, you didn't give them a chance to talk about catabaptism. But anyways, he, the real issue is put forth in that last line of this quote, where he says, Catabaptism is really connected with rebellion. It is the watchword of seditious men. If you see a Catabaptist or if you see an Anabaptist, that's basically a rebel. Now, if you're on the brethren side, you might say along with Peter, should we obey God or should we obey men? This is what the Bible teaches. We can't stop talking about it. We can't stop performing biblical baptisms. We can't stop asserting that the government should not have control of the church. By the way, these brethren at first baptized by pouring, but later by immersion, because they saw it more in line with the New Testament. So, what do you do if you're the city council? These Anabaptists have directly spurned your authority, they are causing religious division in your city, and they've attacked your preacher in pamphlets. Furthermore, more and more people are joining the Anabaptists. At first, the city council warned the Anabaptists and exacted fines. Later, some of the Anabaptists were banished from the city. Eventually, however, the council made Anabaptism, that is, believer's baptism, a capital offense. That is, you will be executed if you practice and teach believer's baptism. And in 1526, the council made this decision. Lo and behold, some of the banished Anabaptists came back to Zurich and they continued to preach Anabaptism. And they did more baptisms. So some of these were finally arrested, tried, and executed. It's actually really sad the way that they were killed. Those Anabaptists who insisted on believers' baptism by immersion, those who were tried, they were executed by being drowned in water. The government's warning became, he who dips will be dipped. 
So with these martyrs, the rest of the brethren in Zurich were exiled or fled. But it's not like they had many places that they could go. Anabaptists were the one kind of Christian that were not tolerated by either Catholic or Protestant. So many Anabaptists, as they fled throughout Europe, were caught and killed. Some were burned, some were drowned, some were drawn and quartered. One source claimed, <clears throat> granted this is an Anabaptist source, but one source claimed that there were more Anabaptist martyrs in the Reformation period than there were Christian martyrs in the Roman Empire. But you know what martyrdom does. It inspires people. People watch these Anabaptists give their lives for what they believed in, and many of those who watched them themselves became Anabaptists. And the Anabaptist movement later adopted pacifism, according to a literal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. This meant that they refused to defend themselves, take part in war, or swear oaths. They also continued to assert a church independent of secular authority. One of the leaders who later emerged in this Anabaptist movement, and who amazingly didn't die, was a man named Menno Simons. His followers became known as the Mennonites. And many of them, well, actually, let me say this. Some today link the Anabaptist movement with the development of the Baptist denomination, though that connection is debated that may have been independent. But regardless, both Baptists and Mennonites would later come to the New World to escape religious persecution. So, back to Zwingli. The whole episode with the Anabaptists is a dark spot on Zwingli's ministry. In a sense, Zwingli betrayed his own principles to support infant baptism and to attack the Anabaptists. But in Zwingli's defense, Zwingli felt that the issue was about more than baptism, that it was about submission to government and the unity of the church. He therefore fiercely contended against the Swiss brethren. Certainly, Zwingli did not call for the Anabaptists to be killed, but he did not disapprove either. So, was Zwingli right? Did he sin? Or were the Anabaptists, or we should ask also this question, were the Anabaptists right to separate over baptism and to separate over the slow pace of reform that was taking place in Zurich? We could ask another similar question of Luther. Was Luther right? to refuse fellowship with the Reformed based on a different understanding of the Lord's Supper. It seems to be these ordinances that separate the early Protestants. It's baptism and the Eucharist. Over these issues, early Protestants break fellowship and even condemn the other side as heretics, resulting in some of them being banished or executed. Who was right? We face similar questions today in terms of how do we deal with our brethren who don't believe exactly the same things that we do? For example, how do we today deal with those who otherwise faithful brethren who baptize infants and don't practice believers' baptism? Or those who are amillennial? Or those who hold to a continuation of the sign gifts? Or who have an inconsistent stance on creation? What do we do? How do we approach these brothers? Do we withdraw fellowship? Do we actually say they're not brethren? 
Do we denounce them? Do we declare war? On the one hand, we know that God's truth is profitable. It deserves defending. And these issues I've mentioned, they are important. They can't be just swept aside. But on the other, on the other hand, there is Jesus' rebuke to his disciples in Luke 9.50, where Jesus said, in reference to a man who is casting out demons in Jesus' name that the, the disciples wanted to stop because he didn't follow along with them, Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. We know there is such a thing as an ecumenicism that goes too far. We've seen the terrible results of that, especially at the end of the 20th century with the evangelical movement. But there is also an ecumenicism that falls too far short. There is a way to be too separatist. In our zeal for truth, we must remember mercy. But in our love, we must not compromise truth. This is perhaps not an easy balance, not an easy thing to maintain both, but it is critical. And we can see what are some of the effects of not doing so even in the Reformation period. Certainly, the issue of what is orthodox and what is unorthodox or even heresy, that issue becomes exacerbated when church and state are united, as was the case with Zwingli and the Anabaptists in Zurich, because then it becomes impossible to separate heresy from rebellion. If you rebel against the official church, then you, in, a set, in essence, are rebelling against the government. And that's going to result in government punishment. Such an issue will come up again later in John Calvin's ministry. But to proceed back with our timeline, by 1527, or no, let me say this. Zwingli contended against the Anabaptist movement until his death. But it was actually Catholic opposition that brought about Zwingli's end. This is the last um, part of Zwingli's life we'll talk about. By 1527, Zurich is very reformed, and the other parts of Switzerland are a little concerned. Protestantism is spreading among the cantons. A Swiss confederation diet in 1526 held a debate between a Catholic theologian, Johann Eck, you may remember him, and a representative of Zwingli as to what was truly biblical. The diet ruled against Zwingliism, and they banned Zwingli's teaching and writing in Switzerland. But reformed, but Re Reformation kept spreading, and gradually other cantons embraced Protestantism. St. Gallen abolished the Mass in 1527. Bern embraced Reformation after Zwingli debated there in 1528. Basel officially prohibited the Mass in 1529, and more cantons joined later. These Protestant cantons, like the princedoms in Germany, soon created a military alliance, which was called the Christian Civic Union. And the Catholic cantons responded with their own alliance. Ah, this situation is sounding familiar. Hostility was brewing between the two sides and just needed a spark to touch it off. And that spark came in April 1529. A reformed preacher was found in a Catholic territory. He was arrested and he was executed. Zwingli, immediately began outlining plans for war, and he submitted them to the council in Zurich, and the Zurich 
and Zurich Council agreed. They declared war on the Catholic cantons and what became known as the First Capel War. Zurich marched upon the Catholics and was about to begin battle when a last-second armistice prevented any bloodshed. In the peace, Zurich demanded that the dead preacher's family receive reparations, that Zurich be compensated for the war, that the Catholic alliance dissolve, and that reformed preachers be given freedom to preach wherever they wished. However, disunity among the Protestant cantons made it so that in the end, only the demand, the only demand that was accepted by the Catholics was the dissolution of the Catholic alliance with Austria. With peace secured, Zwingli and the Swiss Protestants tried to strengthen their position. There was a chance for the Christian Civic Union to build an even greater alliance with um, German Protestants at the Marburg Colloquy, in 1529, but you already know what happened there. Luther and Zwingli could not agree on the Eucharist, so that alliance fell through. Despite the failure of that colloquy, though, Zwingli continued on Zurich's behalf to try to build alliances with other Protestant states. For a time, the Christian Civic Union was allied with the Kingdom of Hesse in Germany, but after the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, that alliance, too, was severed. So, in the end, the Protestant cantons of Switzerland did not get any outside help, no outside alliances to strengthen their position. So they looked for other ways to overcome the Catholics, but they could not agree on which method to pursue. Some cantons wanted to use diplomacy, others advocated economic blockade, while Zwingli advocated for war. We've got to go to war with these, with these Catholics. But no, the cantons could not come to an agreement and frustrated, Zwingli tried to resign from his church post in July 1531, warning the Council of Zurich that it would be extremely dangerous to leave the Catholic cantons alone. We have to go to war. Council didn't agree, but they also would not accept Zwingli's resignation, so he withdrew it. But later that year, the five Catholic cantons of Switzerland suddenly declared war on Zurich. The Catholic army was outside the city before Zurich was ready. A group of 3,500 men, including many pastors, Zwingli himself among them, went out to meet the Catholic invaders in battle. The Catholic army was double the size, about 7,000 men. The two sides met in battle, and the battle lasted only about an hour. Zurich was defeated. About 500 men of Zurich had been killed, including Zwingli. Heinrich Bollinger, Zwingli's successor, recounts Zwingli's death. He says the Catholics found him wounded with his face down under a tree. Quote, they turned him round and asked him to confess. He repeatedly shook his head by way of denial. Die then, stiff-nicked heretic, and he was given the death blow. Unquote. If you'd like to visit Zwingli's gravesite today, well, you can't. The Catholics cut up and burned his body and dispersed his ashes in the wind. But you can see Zwingli's helmet and weapons, which are now in a Swiss museum. They're actually pictured on the slide. So Zwingli's life came to an end. What happened afterwards? Well, the peace treaty that ended this Second Capel War called for an end of the Protestant alliance and the reestablishment of Catholicism in certain areas that had embraced reform. 
However, most cities were free to choose whether to follow Catholicism or Reformed Protestantism. So Switzerland, like the greater Holy Roman Empire, became an official mixture of Catholic and Protestant. And though tensions still existed, the arrangement from this war would keep the peace in Switzerland for almost 200 years, which is better than other places in Europe. So though the spread of Protestantism was reined in somewhat by this war, Bullinger and Calvin, who would also come to Switzerland, would later build on what Zwingli started. So here is Zwingli, pastor, expositor, politician, soldier, a great man, yet an imperfect man, used by God as part of a reformed revival. He was a clay pot that God saw fit to use to bring forth the treasure of God's word to many people in Switzerland who had never heard it before. His ministry, like Luther's, again, was all about the Bible. Listen to the Bible, believe the Bible, preach the Bible, and watch it transform people's lives. That's what we see in Luther and in Zwingli, and really with all the reformers. I'll close my official presentation with one of Zwingli's famous quotes regarding the scriptures. Zwingli said, quote, For God's sake, do not put yourself at odds with the word of God. For truly, it will persist as surely as the Rhine follows its course. One can perhaps dam it up for a while, but it is impossible to stop it, unquote. We have a few minutes. Questions or comments on today's lesson on Ulrich Swingley? Yes. Okay, yeah, good question. How is it that the humanists could give a positive influence when we thought, or when it seems today, that humanists are pretty anti-God and anti-Bible and anti-anything that's good? Well, the answer to that question uh, basically centers on the idea that the humanists of this time were different than the humanists today. Renaissance humanists are all about the humanities. That is, uh, they're about the study of history, they're about the study of languages, they're about the study of ancient texts which is different than humanists today. Humanists today are all about the exaltation of man, apart from God or even denying God outright. So the humanists of the Renaissance period and the Reformation period, they are not anti-God. They merely are focused on the humanities. They are scholars. Many of them do translations of the Bible or they do work studying the Bible. Erasmus was a noted humanist. And they actually had a positive effect on Europe, on the church, and on Reformation. Now, many humanists would end up not embracing Reformation, even though they did things that were positive for the Reformation. So these humanists generally were a good thing. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Okay, your question is, can I explain that how 
What was the difference between the way that Luther and Zwingli came to understand the gospel of the New Testament? Well, I think their ways are actually pretty similar. Both of them were studying the Bible um, for their own benefit, but also to teach to others. And they realized that what had been the traditional interpretation of certain texts, even the, the traditional translation of certain verses in the Bible, was not accurate. And they came to understand, when they came to those verses that talk about what is the essence of salvation, that it is justification by faith. Really, their, their salvation experiences are similar, except that Luther was a little bit more tormented than Zwingli was. <laughs> Luther was doing everything he possibly could to justify himself before God. Zwingli doesn't seem to have gone to quite that same passionate level, but in many ways, they're their experience was the same. They both feared giving an account to God, but they both saw that their justification lay not in themselves, but in the work of Christ that was accomplished on their behalf. So it really is sola fide for both of them as they came to study the scriptures, which is why we say we want to give people the scriptures. As they hear it, as they understand it, that's going to be the power of God unto salvation. We're out of time. If you have other questions or comments, please email me. Next week, we move to the second generation of reform. These were the Marines, so to speak. They're the first on the scene. They're the, the ones who are first trying to promote reform in Europe. But in the second generation, we meet the famous John Calvin. He's who we'll talk about next week. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for bringing about this reformation more than or about 500 years ago. Lord, we are benefact, or we are those who benefit from it today. Thank you for these faithful men and women who went before, these preachers, these reformers, these men who, who supported them, these women who supported them, uh, the wives of these reformers, God, who kept them going in ministry. God, I pray that we would be zealous for your scriptures, zealous for your truth, but also, God, merciful and understanding, not creating barriers where they don't need to be, but not compromising the truth. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be faithful to your scriptures, to embrace both of those concepts faithfully. Lord God, we do need your help. Please protect us from evil. Protect us from error. Help us to grow in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Calvary, I'll see you next week.